0: Wolves are making a comeback across Europe. Wolves are back in Belgium for the first time in more than a
1: hundred
2: years.
0: As their populations grow, wolves are killing tens of thousands of livestock a year. They
2: have become a scary reality for these sheep and other farm animals, so much that it has led to a confrontation between farmers and conservationists
0: more interactions between wolves and humans are also becoming increasingly inevitable. And now, moves are underway to change the protection status of the wolf in the European Union. In this episode, we speak to a social scientist who's been researching the best ways for humans and wolves to coexist. I'm Gemma Ware, and this is The Conversation Weekly, the world explained by experts. I'm joined for this episode by Jack Marley, Environment Editor at The Conversation in the UK. Happy New Year, Jack, and welcome back to the podcast. It's been a while.
1: Happy New Year, Gemma.
0: So Jack, you and your colleagues on the Environment Desk, you often work on some pretty gloomy stories about the state of the climate and the environment. But you also do get some good news stories from time to time about nature taking back initiative. This is also sometimes called rewilding. Tell us about that. Tell us about rewilding.
1: There's a lot of debate among specialists about what the term specifically refers to, but uh, rewilding is at least, it's a process in which we allow ecosystems to regenerate on their own. And to sort of allow nature to to will the process rather than have conservationists doing a lot of the management. And a lot of people think that some form of rewilding will be essential for solving a lot of the major environmental problems that we face this century, whether it is climate change or biodiversity loss.
0: One of the examples that's often pointed to for this return of nature, return of animals that have been around in the past, is wolves in Europe. Tell me what's been happening with that.
1: As a lot of farmland in Europe has been abandoned over the last few decades, it's inevitably meant that a lot of land that was under strict management and cultivation has kind of just been left to its own devices. And so wolves have kind of remained at the periphery for really a century. They were hunted almost to, to extinction across most of the continent. And I think they held on in sort of the really dense forests in places like Romania. And since these former areas that were in under sort of heavy production have been released from that, Wolves have kind of sensed an opportunity and crept back into the landscapes that they've actually been absent from for a long time. Uh, and this has happened remarkably quickly. You know, we're talking about just the last couple of decades, really, so just within my lifetime.
0: And it's also become in recent years quite a political issue too. What is it, do you think, about wolves that makes it so touchy as a subject?
1: I think one of the things is that you may not know that a wolf has returned to the land that you inhabit. You may have absolutely no idea until... One morning, if you are a livestock farmer, you wake up to see the results of their visit the previous evening. That realisation of seeing, you know, sheep ravaged by a wolf can be pretty disturbing. And the, the consequences of that for the animals is as upsetting as you can imagine.
0: But on the flip side of that, there are people who feel incredibly strongly about protecting them and some places where that's being brought in in legislation. So what is it about wolves that are appealing to our kind of wilder part of ourselves, I guess.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, wolves really are the promise of rewilding. They're as wild as it gets. And I think that a lot of what rewilding promises is that kind of excitement and rush that you get with a more vibrant ecosystem. When a wolf returns, it's kind of tempting to kind of imagine that you can reverse a lot of damage that's being done by bringing in this really dynamic predator that can shake things up and create a a world that we had thought for some time belonged in Europe's past. So I think wolves are kind of a, a harbinger of this, you know, the wild coming back almost miraculously. And I think that that is kind of naturally very exciting.
0: And you've done a few stories about wolves. And I know when you do so, you turn to your wolf woman, let's call her, to help us understand what's going on. Tell us about Hannah Peterson.
1: Hannah's is a postdoctoral research associate at the Leverhulme Centre for Anthropocene Biodiversity at the University of York in the UK. She's from Sweden originally, which is where wolves have lingered a lot longer than elsewhere in Northern Europe. And um, she first approached us about her research that she was due to publish from her PhD, which had studied the way wolves interact with people in Spain. And I think her research, looking at the sort of experiences of people who were, you know, living in what I would kind of imagine is the future, you know, where we've managed to sort of bring back the wildlife that we need to bring back in order to have kind of a more sustainable way of living on Earth. And she had all these stories about, you know, what it actually meant, the sort of trade-offs that you inevitably had to take into account when you were sharing your world with these animals. And and it just really kind of brought it home to me of, you know, what what kind of, Changes do we really need to make to live sustainably?
0: Great, thanks, Jack. I called up Hannah to find out more about her research, and she told me that she'd spent time in three different areas of Spain talking to people about wolves.
2: The first area I went to is a part of Spain called Sanabria la Carballeda, and uh, it's one of the densest wolf habitats in Europe now. And it's this area of kind of low hills and scattered uh, pine forest, pine plantations and so on. And that makes wolves quite easy to spot in this area compared to many others. You spent a couple of months there. Did you see wolves? I did, actually. So uh, we spent quite a few mornings on a hill, uh, frozen, looking through binoculars and eventually managed to spot wild wolves walking over some hills Another day or just a few weeks later, the local baker called and told me that he had a wolf in his chicken coop and wondered if we wanted to see it. And as somebody who studies the interactions between people and wolves, that's why I was there. It was quite an interesting opportunity to see what would happen when people and wolves actually very much interacted.
0: Weighing in at an average 40 kilos or nearly 90 pounds, a Eurasian wolf would be quite the startling find in one's chicken coop. But Hannah says the baker was pretty nonchalant about the situation.
2: He was very unfazed by this wolf in his chicken coop, which it was um, a bit diseased and a little bit uh, confused possibly and was looking for an easy meal and then managed to escape during the night uh, during kind of unclear, (laughs) unclear conditions. But this is kind of illustrative of this area where people have lived with wolves always.
0: So it's not a big deal if someone gets a wolf in their chicken coop, really?
2: I mean, it was a little bit of a big deal. There was like a little newsflash in the the local paper the day after and stuff like that.
0: Wolves used to be commonplace across Europe. Hannah told me that they're good at adapting, taking advantage of whatever food they can find. But because they like to eat livestock, they were eradicated from large areas of Europe in the 19th century. In the past several decades, though, they've been making a comeback.
2: Ever since uh, stricter conservation regulations and a change of mindsets in most Europeans, and also because of increasing land abandonment on the countryside, the, the populations have increased significantly. Counting wolves is difficult.
0: They're elusive creatures. But according to a new analysis published by the European Commission in December, there were an estimated 20,300 wolves across the EU in 2023. That's an 81% increase in the just over 11,000 wolves estimated in 2012. And over the past decade, they've also expanded their geographic range on the continent by more than 25%. Wolves pose little danger to humans. Attacks on people are exceedingly rare. Their diet consists primarily of ungulates, or hooved animals, which includes sheep and cows. And the new European analysis says around 65,000 livestock a year are being killed by wolves. Now, Hannah made it clear to me that she's no expert in wolf anatomy or behaviour. She's a social scientist interested in the study of global problems and their solutions.
2: I'm much more knowledgeable about the people side of things. And if you think about conservation and they need to restore biodiversity because of the way we live and the space we take up, it's really a people problem. And we need to figure out better ways of living with wildlife. And in Europe, there are strong agendas now to bring back a lot of these big, hairy creatures, many of them with sharp teeth. There are ideas to do kind of large scale restoration. And that's great. And as a continent where we have, you know, used a lot of the land for food production and other things and and almost outsourced all the biodiversity conservation to other continents like Africa and, you know, in India, for example, they have lots of large carnivores and a lot of people too. It's definitely our turn to take some responsibility when it comes to conservation, but it's somewhat tricky to live with these
0: large carnivores. Hannah explained that Spain was a natural choice for her research.
2: Many people are uh, surprised that Spain actually has a lot of wolves, somewhere around 2,500. And it's a very interesting country in many ways when it comes to studying coexistence of people and wildlife. Because one of the most tricky contexts to live with wolves is when you have free-roaming livestock. Spain is a great example Uh, because it has these really widespread pastoral systems, but also a quite rapidly expanding wolf population.
0: Spain is also at the forefront of a growing trend to protect animals that used to be considered pests. In 2021, after decades of allowing wolves to be hunted on a limited basis in certain regions of the country, the Spanish government declared wolves a strictly protected species, making them entirely off-limits to hunters.
2: It's one of those things that kind of illustrate that whether we protect wolves or whether we hunt them really depends on the way we think about animals and nature at the time. It varies throughout the ages. So wolves used to be declared a pest species and and people used to be paid to get rid of them. That was, you know, that was the dominant understanding at the time. And now just within a generation or two, people are actually jailed for doing the same thing. So it's quite a rapid transition or a change of mindset.
0: This change in mindset is exactly what Hannah wanted to examine with her research. The Spanish law was introduced by a coalition of left-wing political parties. And Hannah told me that it passed by a very narrow majority.
2: Spain is a very decentralized country. So there are many different autonomous communities. And uh, there was a vote among the autonomous communities. And it passed by a one-vote majority. And the areas of Spain where 95% of the wolves are all voted no, whereas the areas where there are no wolves voted yes. So it's um, easy to be in favor of wolves if you don't live with them. There have been research that have illustrated quite clearly that the support for wolf increased with distance to the nearest wolf habitat. So it's essentially for those who are familiar with the concept of nimbyism, not in my backyard. Once Hannah had
0: fixed upon Spain, she decided to choose three areas, which all had varying relationships with
2: wolves. The first was Sanabria La Carayada, site of the chicken coop raid. It's a part of Spain where wolves have always been around. And it's quite famous as a place where coexistence is working. So uh, not only do they have quite a lot of wolves, they've also in the last decades or so started getting quite a lot of wolf tourism because wolf tourism is quite favorable there just because they're easy to see. And the people there, many of them are still traditional livestock herders. So they have sheep and some people also have cows. And they're very used to wolves because they never disappeared So they have this amazing ability and skill when it comes to protecting their livestock from wolves, which is why this area is quite famous.
0: One of the ways farmers have adapted to living with wolves is by surrounding their animals with livestock guardian dogs.
2: For those who don't know them, livestock guardian dogs are massive creatures, much bigger than a wolf in most (laughs) cases. And um, you need quite a few of them to defend your livestock. So... One example is this shepherd who had somewhere around 1,500 sheep, I think, and they had 21 huge livestock guardian dogs to protect this group of sheep, right? So these people dedicate significant resources and efforts and time to protect their livestock from wolves, and they do so quite successfully. The second
0: area Hannah visited for her research is in the north of Spain, in the region of Asturias.
2: It has this beautiful national park called Picos de Europa. It looks a bit like the Alps, if one wants to imagine. So like these high summits with like really green, lush pastures in the summer. And people there have this kind of uh, transhuman practice, which means that they have their livestock in the valleys during the winter and then they drive them up to the peaks in the summer. And they produce amazing and really stinky cheese. And this whole system uh, is very much dependent on the livestock, of course, which uh, roam freely on these pastures uh, in the mountains. Wolves have returned there. They used to be extinct from this area, and they returned in the 80s. Hannah went there to find out what happens when wolves return to a pastoral landscape. What happened was that it was... Not so popular with the local people, and it created a lot of uh, damage on the livestock sector. And it's because it's quite difficult to protect livestock in this area. This area has much more kind of dramatic peaks, lots of mist blowing in from the ocean, and also just a different system of managing the animals, which Mm -hmm. makes it much harder to use livestock guardian dogs, for example.
0: Another factor is the local tourist economy. This beautiful area attracts many visitors, and livestock dogs don't take well to strangers hiking through their territory, especially those who bring their own dogs along.
2: So it's complicated for many reasons, and therefore there's been a lot of conflicts and disputes about wolves in this area, about how to manage them. And um, that hasn't really improved with this new law that strictly protects wolves, because Before 2021, the regional government had a little bit more ability to regulate the wolf population through culling. So this new kind of uh, strict wolf protection was not at all popular in this part of Spain.
0: Okay, so we've had one area where there always been wolves and second area where there are wolves again, having not been. And then your third area, what was that dynamic?
2: The third area was an area where there were no wolves, but where they were just around the corner. (laughs) Well, and this was the case when I was there in 2020, but um, they are now back. So essentially there was a mountain range Sierra de Gredos that separated La Vera, which is in the region of Extremadura from Avila, which is on the other side where there are wolves. But since then they have essentially roamed across the the mountain range and they're now back in this area too.
0: Because there were no wolves there, there'd been no damage to livestock in La Vera when Hannah was there. But public opinion in the area was very negative about their potential arrival.
2: What I was interested in is this transition between an area where we know that wolves have always been around and it works quite well, towards where they come back and towards where they will come back, to understand what we can learn from each of these cases. And how can we prepare those areas that are anticipating the return of wolves? to hopefully avoid some of the mistakes and some of the damage that has been caused in other areas where we have done nothing. So how can we manage wolf populations more proactively was essentially what I wanted to know.
0: Hannah says that many European countries haven't been very good at thinking through what happens when wolves make a return or working with local communities to prepare for what can be quite a difficult transition. I asked her what practical measures could actually help.
2: One thing that is starting to become implemented more and more in Europe now are these participatory platforms where you gather farmers or hunters or just local villagers or everybody who will be impacted in some way by wolves to discuss what can be done? And if you do that before wolves return, it's much easier to identify what are the vulnerabilities here. Like for example, how are the sheep roaming around the mountains here? Which farmers will be at the front line? Where do we need to put in fences? Mm. Where do we need to make sure that wolves don't enter because there's absolutely no wild ungulates at all, and only livestock, for example, in certain areas. There are many, many questions that should be considered when you know the wolf population will be entering a new area. And of course, there needs to be money in place to help those people who will have to do these transitions because, for example, installing fences in those cases where that might work is very expensive, and a lot of these people might have very scarce resources. And of course, there's knowledge from areas that have wolves already that could be transferred to other areas. The list is very long, but it depends very much on the region where they are coming back. And you need to find out what they need. And only local people can tell you what they need.
0: Wolves have made such a comeback in Europe that politicians are now moving to change their protection status. In September 2023, Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, said that the concentration of wolf packs in some European regions has become a real danger for livestock and potentially also for humans. This is a personal issue for von der Leyen. her pony was recently killed by a wolf that got into its compound in northwest Germany. The Commission ran a call-out for information on wolf populations across the European Union and in late December announced a proposal to change the protection status of wolves from strictly protected to protected under the Berne Convention, a treaty governing the conservation of wild flora and fauna across Europe. If that proposal is accepted, it will pave the way for a change to the European habitat directives that would give EU countries more powers to control wolf populations. How much of this decision-making on what to do about wolves and where they should be protected or not is actually down to environmental and conservation science and saying here is an area where we need more wolves for X reason? And how much of it's just down to politics and the sentiment at that moment?
2: Yes. So that is a very a very difficult question, right? Because it essentially comes down to questions about what is natural, And what should be there, right? And questions about what is natural, they are very hard to answer because the only thing we know about nature for certain is that it always changes. So this idea that there was this pristine past before humans started, you know, tinkering with things that we can go back to is completely flawed. And if we accept that, the fact that we can't just go back to some kind of pre-human state when everything was perfect and natural well, then everything becomes quite uncertain. So, I mean, it's a human choice now to bring wolves back or to let them come back by themselves. But, you know, (laughs) we have changed our preferences before and we can change our preferences again. Conservation science is extremely important to map all their effects and social science economics too, to map their impacts on people. But it's a question of choice in the end. And if we can figure out how to coexist with wolves, we have a very good model for how to coexist with other animals too, is the hope. Because this is really a choice we're making as a society. There's nothing kind of inevitable about it. We can choose to do it, we can choose not to do it. And now the political kind of landscape is pushing us towards restoration, which, you know, many people are happy about, including me. Uh, But we have to figure out how to distribute those burdens and benefits and costs in socially just ways and in ways that are sustainable.
0: That's it for this week's episode of The Conversation Weekly. Thanks to Jack Marley and Sam Phelps at The Conversation in the UK. You can sign up to a newsletter that Jack writes every week called Imagine about solutions to the climate crisis. We'll put a link to that in our show notes. And we'll also link to a couple of articles that Hannah Petterson has written for The Conversation about her research. This episode was written and produced by Katie Flood and me, Gemma Ware, with assistance from Mend Marawani. I'm also the show's executive producer. Sound design is by Eloise Stevens and our theme music is by Nita Sahl. Stephen Kahn is our global executive editor. Alice Mason runs our social media and Soraya Nandi does our transcripts. You can connect with us on Instagram at theconversation.com on X, formerly known as Twitter, at TC underscore audio or email us directly at podcast at theconversation.com You can also sign up for The Conversation's free daily newsletter by clicking on the link in our show notes. If you like what we do, please support our podcast and The Conversation more broadly by going to donate.theconversation.com That's donate.theconversation.com And please rate and review the show wherever you listen. It really does help us reach a wider audience.